and slavery, kingdom and cross, mercy and justice, restoration and exile, and life and death. He pulls all these threads together. And the Bible is inexhaustibly rich, and we'll, we'll have to limit ourselves to just four themes this weekend that run from Genesis to Revelation. And even then, we're, we're only scratching the surface. As one of my seminary professors used to say, we are skiing over gold mines, just passing and whizzing by them. So with, with that as our introduction in my time now officially starting, um, let us begin what I'd argue is, uh, begin with what I'd argue is the primary theme throughout the entire Bible, and that is the kingdom. The kingdom. And this story, we're going to walk through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, uh, four times this weekend. Uh, and, and we're going to walk through the four chapters, if you will, of, of the biblical storyline, focusing on a different theme each time. We're going to walk through the same four chapters with a different angle each time. Um, and, and this time we are starting with the kingdom, and the first chapter is in the garden. So our first chapter tonight, the first point, God's kingdom in the garden. God's kingdom in the garden. We'll be flying through a lot of scripture, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be reading them. You can turn there if you'd like or jot them down. Um, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, all right? So starting in Genesis 1, 1 verse 1 and 2. The Word of God says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. Let me just pause here. God created everything, and so God owns everything. And it's clear that because he is God, he rules over all things. The earth was, it says, without form and void. So days one through three, he forms the earth. Days four, five, and six, he fills the earth. He solves both of those problems of being formless and void. And on the sixth day, God did something special. Go down to Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now it says there very clearly, mankind was made in the image of God. And mankind was made to fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion over it. It's important to recognize that these are, are kingly and royal terms. When they're to subdue and have dominion, those are king-like words. Adam and Eve are to rule over the world as God's image bearers. In the ancient Near Eastern world, which was the cultural background of the Old Testament, kings were, were thought to be made in the image of their gods, much like a, a son is made in the image of uh, his father. And so kings would often set up an image of themselves in a conquered land to show, hey, I own this territory. If a king conquered a land, he'd set up an image of himself there as a symbol that he rules over that domain. Kind of similar to how flags work today for us. Well, when a country conquers another land, they put their flag there. We rule here. We are in charge. So by creating the world 
and setting up an image of himself on the earth, God was proclaiming his own kingly reign over the earth. And that kingly reign was mediated through his image bearers, through his image. And so God commanded man, his image bearers, to have dominion and subdue the earth as his representative. So God is the capital K king. We are the lowercase kings who would represent him and and reign under him. He's the king of kings, and we are the, the little kings under him, so to speak. And Genesis one twenty eight says that God blessed them and, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I think you understand this, right? Being fruitful and multiplying is not about gardening or about math, right? This is about procreation and filling the earth. So mankind filled the earth, and, and as mankind would do that, the kingdom of God would, would be expanded as God's image bearers who rule under him fill the earth, then God's kingdom would then fill the earth. So when God finished his work on the sixth day, he, he looked at it all and he said it was very good. It was very good. And then he gave Adam a command, a command and a job. Jump down to Genesis 2 verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I want you to just notice there, work existed before the fall. Work existed before the fall, but it was not frustrating. It was, it was fruitful and fulfilling and joyful. Work was already there. And, and God said, and I love this, he said, you may eat of every tree of the garden except one, except one. And, and I, I hope you hear the grace behind that. I hope you hear the, the kindness and generosity of God behind that. Sometimes we focus on, why can't I eat from that one tree? He said, no, but all the trees you can eat, all but one, there is grace in this command. And, and so, Everything seems to be going well at this point until suddenly this, this fledgling kingdom is attacked and subverted. It's not attacked and subverted by an aggressive army, but by a serpent with subtle lies. And so you see in Genesis 3 where things start to unravel. Look at Genesis 3 verses 1 to 7. It says there, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sometimes truth is communicated through the, the mouth of babes and that crying baby is right. This is a sad day. This is, sorry, that, still going. They get it. This is, this is a terrible thing to happen. And I want you to just notice here the lie that Satan tells. The lie that Satan tells Eve 
is that God is holding out on you. God is holding back something good for you. Satan was trying to say that God is not as good as you might think. And she, she buys the lie. You may eat of every tree except one, and all she hears is that one. And Satan says, that's the one, though. That's the one. The lie is God doesn't truly love you. God isn't really good. God is holding out on you. This is a, this is a poisonous lie. This is a dangerous and powerful lie that is sadly widely believed all the way down to today. Friend, I want you to understand tonight that God is for you and for your everlasting joy. The commands that God gives are for our good, not for our evil. But Eve believed the lie, and so she ate. And as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, the blessing of the garden was turned into a curse. The the serpent is cursed, the ground is cursed, and work would now be frustrating. Uh, It would be a frustrating burden rather than a fruitful blessing. And that's why work even today is hard, whether you're actually doing gardening, which, by the way, I hate doing gardening. I hate doing yard work, and I always think of Eve every time I have to mow the lawn. Or that's why your, your programs have bugs, and you can't run them right, or whatever your work is. But in the midst of all these curses, God gives a promise of hope. Look at Genesis 3.15. This is one of the key verses in all of Scripture. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. This is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says there will be an offspring. There will be a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman who will crush, who will bruise, who will crush the head of the serpent. And he will bruise that offspring's heel. This is the promise that sets the rest of the scriptures in motion. This is the promise that that the rest of the, the Old Testament people of God would look back to and wait for its fulfillment. By crushing this serpent, this offspring would ultimately undo the curse and restore the blessing. That's the idea here. And so at this point, if you're, if you're reading the story carefully, if you're understanding what's going on, there should be two questions that come to mind. First, will God's kingdom still be established on earth? And secondly, who is this offspring? Who is this seed of the woman who will undo the curse? They need to start looking for this one. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, they're looking for this one. It's almost as if the Old Testament goes, is it this one? No. This one? No. This one? No. Definitely not him. This one? No. If you're reading the Old Testament, that's the idea that you start to pick up. And so that brings us along in the story. Now, life outside the garden becomes difficult. God had to banish Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin, but they carried with them out of the garden. They carried with them this promise, this hope of one who would undo the curse. This promised snake-crushing offspring. They were looking for this one. And so life outside the garden became hard and and things went from bad to worse. From bad to worse, so much so that God decided to hit the reset button and flood the whole earth. But God did not forget his promise about the offspring who would reverse the curse. And neither did mankind. Mankind remembered this promise because if you look over in Genesis 5, At the very end of this long genealogy of the people who lived the longest, you see at the end of this genealogy in verse 28, there's a man named Lamech. It says, 
when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son. This is Genesis 5 and now verse 29. And Lamech called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do do you catch what Lamech is saying? He's saying, maybe it's this one. Maybe this is the one who will undo the curse. Maybe this one will bring us relief and rest from our toil. And by the way, maybe your Bible has a little footnote there. The, The word for for rest or relief sounds like Noah. So it's like he named his son nap time. Rest. I'm going to name him rest because maybe he will give us rest from the curse. So they're looking for this one. And, and for a moment, it seems like maybe it's Noah. Could it be him? Maybe. Let's see. After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah. And he made a covenant with Noah and the earth, a special promise that he would never flood the whole earth again. And look at Genesis Eight verses 21 and 22. It says there, in the Lord, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, Noah had built an altar and made some sacrifices. When he had smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. Now, I just want you to remember those words. Remember those ideas about seasons, about the day and the night. I want you to keep that in mind because that will come up again. Now, we call this the Noahic covenant, and this tells us that God is committed. He is committed to fulfilling his plan for the world. He is not going to start over and just scratch the whole thing. He will do what he promised on this planet with this mankind, as sinful as they are. The language of Genesis 8 and 9, actually, if you read the the story of Noah, it should sound very familiar to you because God is intentionally presenting Noah here as a new Adam, as a new Adam. Noah is blessed with the same blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. He hears those same words. Noah still bears the image of God. He is given the same command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And thus he has the same task of establishing God's kingdom. But the problem is Noah was like Adam, but he was too much like Adam. Because Adam failed by eating the fruit in the garden. And then Noah would fail by getting drunk from the fruit of the vine from his vineyard. And so this new Adam is like the old Adam, and he fails as well. Sin was in the heart of man, and it couldn't be washed away just with a flood. Now, at that point, there was only one people and one language in the whole earth, and they were unified together. But when you have sinful people who are unified, that just means unified rebellion. And so instead of obeying God and spreading out and filling the earth with the image of God for the glory of God, they decided to scheme together and stay together to build a tower for the glory of man. And that's the Tower of Babel. They built this tower in the city of Babel, which is really Babylon. In in the Hebrew language, it's the exact same word, Babel and Babylon. And so throughout the rest of scriptures, Babylon or Babel would come to represent total and unified rebellion against God. And so to judge them, God confused their languages in Genesis 11. 
God confused their languages as a judgment, and that stopped the construction of the Tower of Babel, that prevented further unified rebellion, and it divided and scattered them so they would indeed fill the earth. And that's the end of the first chapter of the story, God's kingdom in the garden. Now, I know we flew through a lot of things, and, and I trust that, that many of you are familiar with those, with those uh, accounts of Scripture. And so I just wanted to give you that overview and, and help you see how they tie together. That's the close of the first chapter of the story, God's kingdom in the garden. And as we move to the next chapter, we are still, we're still holding on to those two questions. How will God's kingdom be established? How will that happen, and who will do it? Who is the offspring that will reverse the curse? It wasn't Noah. He failed. So now chapter 2 is God's kingdom in Israel. God's kingdom in Israel. So after the Tower of Babel, there was no longer one unified people. Now there's all these different families of the earth all scattered around the whole world. And starting in Genesis 12, God chose a man named Abraham. Or at that time, his name was Abram. But I'll just say Abraham for, for simplicity's sake. He chose this man named Abraham. And Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. He chose a man from the place of rebellion. And not only that, Joshua 24.2 tells us that Abraham worshipped other gods. Sometimes we think, oh, God maybe chose, maybe you never thought about why God chose Abraham, but maybe you just instinctively thought because Abraham was a good guy. Abraham was a righteous guy. Abraham was seeking after God. No. Again, another sad day. Abraham worshipped other idols and he was living in Babylon And God said, you, you idolater, idol worshiper, Abraham, I'm going to use you. And he chooses him by sheer grace. Look at Genesis 12 verses one to three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, perhaps this is obvious, but sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. Blessings and curses are opposites. This is, this should be, uh, sorry, did I say opposite? This should be obvious. This should be obvious. Blessings and curses are opposites. And we see, hey, God blessed them, then he cursed them. Then God blessed them, then he scattered them. And here he says, I will bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. And through you, I'll bless the whole world. God is in the business of blessing his people. And he wants to bless the whole world through Abraham and his family. And so... Just as the curse came through this sin, God wants to bring blessing through Abraham and his family and thereby undo the curse. In other words, if I can say it this way, the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 would now come through Abraham. That blessing would come through Abraham's line. Later in Genesis 15, you can read about it later, God confirms this promise. He confirms this promise as a covenant. And we call that the Abrahamic covenant. It's a special and powerful promise and, and typically, when two people made a covenant, oftentimes they would cut animals and 
kind of put them one half over here, one half over here, and they'd walk through, sort of like, you know, down the meat section at the grocery store. Not really. Very different, actually. They would cut these animals, put them one half over here, one half over here, and they would take a walk down the aisle, so to speak. And the idea was, as they walked down between the animal pieces, they were making a covenant saying, if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain, so what was done to these animals, may that be done to me. This was a serious thing. They made a covenant by doing that. But when God made this covenant with Abraham to to, to confirm to him all these promises, God walked through alone. He put Abraham to sleep, and God walked through the pieces alone, signifying that God was guaranteeing by himself that these things would happen. I will give you this land. I will give you offspring. I will make your name great, and I will bless you and bless the whole world through you, Abraham. You can bank on it because I'm putting my name on it. I'm walking through. And so God makes this this unconditional covenant with Abraham and his offspring. He promised Abraham offspring. He promised them the land of Canaan and blessing. And God passed these promises on to Abraham's descendants, onto Isaac, and then onto Jacob. And Jacob would have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And, And at the end of Jacob's life, you can turn to Genesis 49. At the end of of Jacob's life, he, he speaks a word of blessing upon his sons. And he makes a prophecy about his sons. And in particular, in verse 10, he makes a prophecy about one of his sons named Judah. In Genesis 49, 10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, a scepter was something that only a king would have. A scepter meant that somebody from the family of Judah would be a king someday. And so you see now this this promised offspring would come through Adam, come through Noah, come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now it's going to come through the line of Judah. Somebody from the line of Judah will be that king who will undo the curse, who will crush the head of the serpent and restore the blessing. And so now you're looking, okay, who from Judah? How will this happen? All these kingly promises are are echoes of God's commission all the way back to Adam in the garden. Now, after the book of Genesis, you're you're familiar with this because I know Pastor Stephen's preaching through Exodus right now. God's promise to make Abraham um, a great nation starts to come to fruition. God moves Israel down to Egypt to save them during a time of famine. And there God blessed them and multiplied them. So they they went from a a medium-ish family to a a nation of two million people. And Egypt eventually enslaved them. But God raised up a a deliverer named Moses in Charlton Heston style, let my people go. You guys are too uh, young for that, actually. Never mind. But God raises up Moses to deliver them and and bring them back to the land of Canaan in order to fulfill God's covenant with Abraham. And and again, I know you're familiar with these things. And after, after he delivers them, he brings them to Mount Sinai and God makes a covenant with the whole nation through Moses. And we call this the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. Not because they made a mosaic of some sort, but because it was made through Moses. Moses was the mediator of that covenant. And if you turn to Exodus 19... Exodus 19 is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament to understand what God is doing. In Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, listen to what God says. He, he's brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them to this mountain. And, and now this is what God tells Moses to say to the people. 
Exodus 19, starting in verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Israel, here's why God saved you. Not just to save you so that you'd be free, not just to save you from oppression, but to save you unto himself, to save you so you'd be a kingdom of, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was their commission. That was their purpose, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, there were to be a kingdom. Hopefully you're convinced now that this idea of kingdom is all throughout these opening chapters. They're going to be a kingdom. God's going to establish his kingdom through them, his righteous reign through Israel. But not only that, they're a kingdom of priests. Now, what do priests do? Priests represent God to man, and they represent man to God. Priests stand in between as a mediator, representing man to God and God to man. So as a kingdom of priests, Israel was meant to represent God to a watching world and to also bring the nations to God. And if you're going to be a priest for a God who is holy, then you better be holy. So that's why he says you're to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, how, how does it look like to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Well, here's 10 things I'm about to tell you, the 10 commandments and the rest of the law. The reason why God gave Israel the law was not to, hey, here's 10 things you got to do to get saved. No, he already saved them by his mercy and grace. He saved them by his mercy and grace to be in a relationship with him. And he said, now this is how you live as my people so that you can represent me well as a kingdom of priests. And so God was establishing his kingdom through Israel. They were fruitful and as they multiplied, they were filling the land. And, and the purpose was if they were blessed, they would bring all the nations to God. They would see God's blessing. Now, it, it seems almost as if the curse is being rolled back and the kingdom is being established, but then reality sets back in. Just like Adam failed, Noah failed, so Israel fails. When they take possession of the land, everything seems to be okay, but then they enter one of the darkest chapters of Israel's history, the days of the judges. Uh, Israel went on a downward spiral of rebellion, crying for help. A judge delivers them, and then they rebel again, and they cry for help, and a judge delivers them. And it's, it's this cycle that goes downward. It's this downward spiral until they hit rock bottom. Each judge that would deliver them would give them temporary rest from their enemies. But the last and the worst judge, Samson, his deliverance doesn't even end in rest when you read the book of Judges. There's no rest at the end. And the book of Judges ends with a deja vu moment where you can't tell the difference between Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it ends in a terrible, terrible place where you're like, I've read this before. This is, this is Sodom and Gomorrah. And the point is, yes, Israel has fallen that deep that you cannot tell the difference between God's people and Sodom and Gomorrah. And the point of the book of Judges is not grow out your hair long and be like Samson. That's not the point. It's not be left-handed like Ehud and go stab people who are anyway. I'm going to stop there. But the point is not be like the judges. The point of judges is Israel needs a king. That's why the end of the book of Judges says four times, including the very last verse in the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was a kingdom without a king. They didn't follow God's laws. They needed a righteous king who would lead them in righteousness. 
That's the point of the book of Judges. And that's, that leads to the next covenant, the Davidic covenant. They needed a king who would lead them to be holy, who would, who would lead them to be set apart from the nations. The irony is that in 1 Samuel, they asked God for a king. But do you remember their, their reason, their motivation? We want a king like everybody else. We want to be just like everybody else. So give us a king like everybody else. Not a king so we can live more righteously, but a king so we can live more like them. And so God gave them Saul. They gave, he gave them the king they asked for. And it was a disaster for them. But then after that, he gave them another king, the right king, a king from the line of Judah, a king after God's own heart, David the shepherd boy, David from the town of Bethlehem. And if you jump ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we start slow and then we start picking it up. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 7, again, one of the most important chapters in the Bible where God makes this covenant with David. Second Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus, says, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is God speaking to the prophet Nathan. Say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. That, that's a carryover from the Abrahamic covenant. I'll make for you a, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest. I will give you Noah. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14 adds that I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. David, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you Keyword offspring. This offspring is going to have a kingdom that will never end. He will be to me a son. Does this sound familiar to you at all? As New Testament believers, this should sound very familiar. God makes this covenant to David, this Davidic covenant. He'd establish David's kingdom and his throne forever, one of his sons. So, so who is that offspring? It goes from, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Judah and now through the line of David. This promised seed of Genesis 3.15, this promised offspring who had crushed the head of the serpent would come through David and his throne would last forever. Psalm 2 is a familiar psalm. Psalm 2, it's, it's so interesting because sometimes we don't think about what this means about the kingdom, about the kingdom of God, about what God's doing in the world. Psalm 2 says, uh, why do the nations rage? And all the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the word Messiah. Against the Lord and against his Messiah saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Jump down to verse seven. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. David understands that 
This offspring of his is this anointed one, this chosen one, this Messiah. And this Messiah, when he reigns, his reign will not end with the promise. And his reign goes to the ends of the earth. All the nations will belong to this son of David who sits on this throne, whose kingdom will never end, whose throne is established forever. And this would be a righteous reign that would bring blessing to the whole earth. Do you see how this is all coming together? So God promises a king, a a Messiah to pick up the task. And when this kingdom fills the whole earth, the glory of God fills the earth like the waters cover the sea, like Habakkuk 2.14 says. When this righteous son of David reigns in fulfillment of of the Davidic covenant, he'll lead the people in obedience to the Mosaic covenant. And so they'll be blessed so they can be a blessing to the whole world in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and so on and so forth. These are all tying together. It undoes the curse and fulfills the promise of Genesis 3, 15. Do you see how this all weaves together? But unfortunately, like all who came before him, David fails, Solomon fails, fails. There were a small number of of righteous kings, but as a whole, all the kings failed to follow God fully. Because Israel broke their covenant with God, they experienced the curses of the Mosaic covenant, and they were exiled from the land into Babylon. Babel, there it is again, the anti-kingdom of God kingdom. And just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden for their sin, so Israel was exiled from the promised land for theirs. It, It becomes clear at this point that no external laws external laws, no external kingdom, and no human king could undo this curse. No human king could crush the serpent's head. All would fail. Would God's kingdom ever be established? Our same two questions still stand. Will this kingdom ever be established? And will, and who will be this offspring? It wasn't David. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't any of those kings. Well, now we come to the new covenant. Throughout Israel's history, God sent prophets to speak to them, to warn them of their sin, to warn them of coming judgment, but also of, to give hope. Israel, though your sins are like scarlet, you shall be washed clean, the prophet Isaiah would say. These prophets would come announcing judgment for sin, imploring them to repent and be faithful to the covenant that God made with them, and they would promise hope and salvation. And so he would make these promises, but... Though the the people of Israel had broken the old covenant, they were kicked out of the land into Babel, God would speak to them and make a new covenant. A new covenant that wouldn't just give laws externally, but would change their hearts internally. Uh, Turn to the book of Jeremiah. It's after Psalms, after Isaiah. We come to the book of Jeremiah 31. This is the, perhaps the key passage on the new covenant in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Look at these verses. At that time, oh, sorry, hold on, wrong one. 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He's speaking of the Mosaic covenant there. For this This new covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they teach each one his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
Thus says the Lord who gives, and listen to this, the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Does that language sound familiar to you at all about the, the sun and the moon and the light and the day and the fixed order of the earth? This harkens back to the Noahic covenant, all the way back to Noah. And so here we, we see this new covenant ties all these threads together. If you jump over to Jeremiah 33, 33 verse 14. He says there, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Jump down to verse 19. Uh, the, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, speaking of the Noahic covenant, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. If you jump down to verse 25, thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. I, I want to make sure you hear all these words because this is piling up all these terms. This new covenant is tied to the Davidic covenant. It's tied to the Abrahamic covenant. It's even tied to the Noahic covenant. All these things are being woven together. It's all hinging upon this Noahic covenant. God will keep his promises. God will keep his covenant. His people have been unfaithful, but God will be faithful in his mercy and grace. He'll be faithful. When the, Noahic, or when the new covenant is fulfilled, all the covenants are fulfilled. But who is the one who will bring this in? Who will bring in the new covenant? That's the central message here of what's going to happen. And, and this idea of the kingdom is, is still this central thread because when you get to uh, the, the prophet Daniel, I've got to just summarize here now at this point, but the, in the book of Daniel, some of you are familiar with Daniel because you remember from, from growing up at church, right? You got the lion's den, you got the fiery furnace. But the prophet Daniel is all about the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom of God. In Daniel 2, when Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar about his dream. Remember the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue with a head of gold, a body of silver and bronze. And there's all these different pieces of this statue. And then a rock falls out of the sky and crushes the whole thing. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, I don't know what that means. And so Daniel tells him, well, here's what it means. You're the head, you're the golden head, but there's another king that comes after you and another one after that, another one after that. But then this rock that crushes everything that's a rock that's not cut by human hands that becomes a mountain that fills the whole world. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to come and overrule all these human nations. And that's why in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue that's made of all gold. He's like, there's nobody after me. I'm the whole way down. Later on in, in Daniel, later on in Daniel, um, 
in Daniel 7. This will be the last one in the Old Testament, and then we're going to zoom through just a couple thoughts in the New Testament. In Daniel 7, I want you to see this here. Daniel 7 ties up some of these threads again some more. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, thinks it's all about him. No, it's not. It's about the kingdom of God and the one who will rule. And this, this offspring is going to be called the son of man. His dominion is everlasting. Who is this one? And the Old Testament ends on this cliffhanger. They return to their land eventually out of Babylon, but they're not blessed. They're not a blessing to others. They have no son of David reigning on the throne. That's how the Old Testament ends. They're waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah, the son of David, the son of man. Uh, they're waiting for this one who would bring about the new covenant, who would fulfill the Davidic covenant, who would establish the kingdom of God to bring blessing to the world and undo the curse. And that's the end of the second chapter. And the third and fourth chapter will be fast. We've seen the, God's kingdom in the garden, God's kingdom in Israel. Third, God's kingdom in Christ. God's kingdom in Christ. If you turn to Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, uh, if you... If you've been following all along, these words should have so much more meaning. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, if you only think of the Bible, uh, starting from the New Testament, starting from Jesus and ending with your salvation, it's like watching, um, it's like watching Avengers uh, Infinity War without watching any of the movies before or the Return of the King and Lord of the Rings, or pick your favorite epic saga, and you're just watching one piece from the end, and you've missed everything leading up to it, and you're just like, oh, I guess that's kind of a cool story. No, this is an amazing story. Jesus is the one coming in fulfillment of, of the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Even words like in Luke 1, in Luke 1, 31 to 33, Listen to these words. These are familiar, but they take on more meaning. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, Mary, and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, this whole kingdom idea is coming to fruition now with Jesus. Jesus is coming. It was not disconnected from the Old Testament. It was a fulfillment of the New Testament. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why? Every king in Judah was born in Jerusalem except for one. You know who was the only king born outside of Jerusalem? David. Where was he born? Bethlehem. So where is Jesus born? Bethlehem. Because he's the son of David, the true son of David. And Jesus, his, his first words as he starts to preach, the time is fulfilled, Mark 1 says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom. When Jesus performed miracles... And, and heal the sick and cast out demons. Jesus wasn't just doing nice things for people or powerful things to show off. Jesus was demonstrating the power and the reality of the kingdom because the king was there. Remember when the religious leaders accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He saw his miracles as a demonstration of the kingdom because the king was there. 
In the kingdom of God, the curse is reversed so the sick are healed. In the kingdom of God, the the curse is reversed so the the blind have sight. The, The serpent is crushed so demons can be cast out. In the kingdom, no one hungers or thirsts, so Jesus feeds the 5,000. In the kingdom, sins are forgiven, so Jesus associates with the lowly. And so a physical kingdom was promised in the Old Testament, and it will come, but Jesus comes first, not as a reigning king over the kingdoms of the earth. He comes as a merciful savior for the sinners of earth. You don't get into this kingdom by works. You get into this kingdom by being born again, by trusting in the king. That's why Jesus says in John 3, not just that you must be born again to be a Christian or be born again to have eternal life. If you look at John 3, he says you must be born again to enter the kingdom. You see how often kingdom comes up here again and again and again. And that's why in Luke 22, Luke 22, when Jesus is celebrating the the last supper with them and he's transforming Passover from the old covenant into communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper for the new covenant. I want you to listen to these words, Luke 22. Just listen to these familiar words coming up and tying these threads together. Verse 14, when the hour came and he reclined at table and the apostles with him, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the first time as far as we know that he has directly and explicitly referenced the new covenant. We've been waiting for the son of David. He's here. We've been waiting for the new covenant. It's here. We're waiting for the kingdom. It's coming. It's all coming together here in Jesus. Every covenant is ratified, is brought about by a sacrifice, is brought about by blood. And here Jesus says, the sacrifice that brings about the new covenant is my own blood, my own sacrifice. So Jesus is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the promised offspring who would, by dying on the cross, he would crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent bruises his heel by Jesus' death on the cross. When the Messiah died, he did not die as a victim, he died as a victor. And when he was was raised from the dead, Acts 1.3 says that Jesus was, was telling and teaching his disciples for 40 days, not about the gospel, it says he was teaching them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of God. And so you see here that, that this, this kingdom has begun to arrive through Jesus, the King. And, and in Acts one, the apostles say right before Jesus leaves, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Are you going to do it now? Like, like right now is the kingdom here. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons in Acts one, eight. And I take that to mean it's not right now, but it's coming. He says, but you go, preach the gospel, go, make disciples. They were waiting for the full kingdom right then, but he says, no, go make disciples, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Why? Because as people believe the gospel, they're receiving this blessing through Abraham and through the offspring. As people are are saved, as the Gentiles, as the nations are being saved, they're being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, as Colossians 1.13 says. 
They're entering the kingdom of God by the preaching of the gospel. That's why Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of a kingdom that's not yet here. Do you understand that? We're citizens of a kingdom that's not yet here. There's a sense in which the church is an outpost of Christ's kingdom in a hostile territory. The church is like an embassy of Christ's kingdom, and we're his ambassadors. We're telling the glories of our king and the glories of this kingdom to anybody who will listen, and we're begging others to join us and become citizens of this kingdom by faith in the king. But the story doesn't end with us here. Remember, Jesus said that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's one last chapter to this story, and this one's going to be quick. God's kingdom in heaven. God's kingdom in heaven. By the end of the first century, the the church was starting to come under heavy persecution from the Romans. If Jesus is king and we're citizens of his kingdom, and if that kingdom is greater than all human kingdoms, then why are we suffering? Why are we being persecuted? Are we on the wrong side of history? That's not a new question for believers today. What's going on? And so the book of Revelation was written to a church that was suffering and in need of hope and encouragement. And in a nutshell, the the point of Revelations, the, the, the book of Revelation is two words, God wins. God wins. And because he wins, persevere and have hope. In Revelation 19, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, comes from heaven on a white horse, and and he comes with his saints and slays all of his enemies. In Revelation 20, he establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and it culminates in a final judgment. And after all that, we reach the final conclusion to this great story. This is the perfect ending to the story that God wrote from the beginning. This is the final and intended destination for, for which he created the world. Now, I'd encourage you to read at your own time, Revelation 21 and 22 in its entirety. But since our time is limited, I just want to highlight two short sections. Look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. That's where kings sit. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, on a hard day, I turn to these verses often. On hard days when your sin has just beat you up, turn to these verses. On hard days when there's tragedies hitting the news, turn to these verses because God is not done. God is in the business of restoring all things and bringing them to their proper end here. And last, look at Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verses 1 to to 5. Uh, The the last verses of Revelation 22, verses 6 and on, are, are sort of the epilogue. But the story ends in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. It says there, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, 
The tree of life that used to be in the garden, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and, on his, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp nor sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And here's the last words, and they will reign forever and ever. This seed of a kingdom back in the garden has bloomed into full fruit, and now it says that God reigns, that the throne is there, and his people will reign with him forever and ever. The kingdom of God is established and perfected here in Revelation 22. This reign will have no end because this kingdom has no end. The Bible begins with God commanding man to have dominion and to subdue it and and fill the whole earth. And now the Bible ends by saying that we will reign with him forever and ever in a glorified, restored, and perfected creation. We've been called to submit to this king, to love this king, to live for this king, to introduce others to this king, and to wait for this king to return to return and establish that forever kingdom of righteousness, rest, and blessing. So friend, I I hope as we've raced through these four chapters that you've gotten a taste, a taste of the glorious plan of God. And not only the glorious plan of God, but the glorious person of God. And my hope and prayer for you is that you would have your eyes opened to the beauty of of our God and of his works, and that you'd worship him and live for him more faithfully in light of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight, for time in your word, for time to reflect on these things. Oh Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to live for you faithfully, to submit to you as king, to live as loyal citizens of a kingdom that's not yet here but is coming. Oh, Lord, would you grip our hearts? Would you grip our hearts with a passion for your kingdom and for your name? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.